Welcome to We Go There. I'm Lexi. And I'm Nikki. And our favorite conversations are when someone starts by saying, this might be TMI, but... But hey, we go there. Because there's no such thing as having too much information when it comes to your health and wellness. We dive deep into topics, interview experts, and get answers you need. Because knowledge is power. And feeling empowered is what we're all about. So let's go there. So today is a very special episode. Just as a warning, we will be talking about human trafficking in this episode. Alexandra Stevenson is a lived experience expert. So she herself has a master's degree in psychology. She's also someone who has lived the experience of human trafficking, and she's going to be sharing with us tips to protect our children, things we need to know to reduce the chances of it happening to our family and just so many things to talk about in this this conversation that a lot of people frankly don't really want to talk about so thank you so much for being here Alexandra Oh well thank you for having me and and for your audience you know who's willing to listen to what you're right is a conversation most people don't want to listen to but we unfortunately need to have Yes, I actually, I got like shivers when I was saying that thinking, like when I was just doing your intro there, because I was thinking about the fact that, you know, I've got a two-year-old and a four-year-old, my four-year-old, my oldest is a girl. And, you know, thinking about the possibility that something might happen to her at some point and what can I do to protect her? And I know there's going to be quite a few parents listening to this podcast who may be having some similar questions. So what is the education that you want to, I mean, there's so much to talk about, but let's start start there, you know? Yeah. So that's an excellent place to start. And I will actually start saying we, it's always a delicate thing to talk about um, violence, uh, trauma in a gendered way, but we do know statistically girls and women experience um, more sexual violence um, and are more likely to be trafficked or exploited. However, I caution, um, to focus the conversation on them, because at the end of the day, we know that while girls and girls and women are more likely to be trafficked and exploited, it's typically boys and men who are doing the trafficking and the exploiting and the purchasing of sex. So this conversation needs to equally involve mm-hmm. all genders um, in different ways. But how we protect our vulnerable is by teaching those who are less vulnerable to participate in that protection. Um, and to not perpetrate harm. So I think those conversations, how we can start having those conversations with really young kids is actually a lot easier than we think. Um, So I teach parents and caregivers, and I often hear like, I'm not talking to my two-year-old, my four-year-old, my six-year-old, my 10-year-old about human trafficking. Like, I don't want to be the one that steals their innocence or, or terrifies them of the world or anything. Um, And to that, I say, first, you can talk about things around trafficking without ever really having to talk about trafficking. Mm -hmm. So you can start talking to your kid about consent at like 18 months old, Mm -hmm. right? So say, I'm going to give you an example. Say you have like a tickle fest with your kid, right? You're tickling them, they're laughing, and they go, no, mama, mama, stop, right? Even though you know they're having fun and they're saying stop because being tickled is awkward, weird, whatever. Um, You go, oh, I heard you say stop. Mama's hands are up. You told me to stop touching your body. So I'm going to listen. 
And they go, no, mommy, keep tickling me. Okay, thank you for letting me know. And you keep tickling. These are how you can start laying some groundwork for consent, especially with kids and adults, right? Even though I'm your mama, you told me to stop touching your body. Mommy listens. Of course, I always get asked, well, what about when you have to change their diaper and they're it's like wrangling an alligator and yes, no, been there. touch me. <laughs> yeah, right. Me too. Um, then it's, you explain, well, mommy's job is to keep you safe and clean. And part of that is changing your diaper. I'm going to explain to you everything I'm doing while I'm doing it. And then as soon as we're done, we can go back to playing or whatever it was you were doing, but you can start talking about consent without it ever having to involve anything sexual at all. You start, you know, even if you have, um, multiple kids, or if your kids are playing with their friends or something, you know, they're in the stage where they just walk over and snatch a toy from their sibling or their friend, which is great. You can say, Oh, did you ask for consent to take that toy? It start like normalize the word. So it doesn't mean it's not this like huge thing that you suddenly introduce when they're 12 or something. And they're like, I am uncomfortable now. <laughs> like, I don't want to have this conversation with you, mom. And mom's like, yeah, I don't really want to have it either. The other thing I'll say is when they do start getting to that age, which unfortunately, because of the internet is way sooner than we think it is. So whereas we might've had the birds and bees talk, you know, at 12, 13, 14, unfortunately, a lot of the trainings I've done and my nonprofit have done with younger kids. So kids going into grade six and seven have already experienced sextortion, um, have already sent pictures of themselves to friends, um, have already seen porn online, uh, have already been talking about it. So even though these conversations are really awkward, uncomfortable, upsetting, maybe triggering, the one thing I try and leave parents with is at the end of the day, your kid is going to learn about this. And if you don't talk to them about it, it's not that they won't learn about it. It's that they won't learn about it from you. Right. They will learn about it from the bowels of the internet or their peers. And you don't necessarily want either of those two groups setting the foundation for their knowledge. So I caution waiting too long. And and a good way to start start approaching some of these topics is to do it when they're really young and remove sex from it entirely. So the conversation doesn't seem to come out of nowhere. I love that. And I probably, I'm going to guess that you probably have some books to recommend that we can put in the show notes or any type of resources or tools for parents who, you know, for example, we have a book that my sister-in-law gave me, which I think is amazing. And it was, you probably are familiar with it. I forget the title, but it was around the lines of like, you know, if you don't like someone touching your body, it was a story and I've read it to my, to my daughter. And it's amazing how much I've, I know has stuck with her because she said to me like, you know, in the bath, like, this is my vagina and no one can touch it except for me and like stuff like that. And I'm like, you're right. That's right. You know, like, I'm like, you go girl, <laughs> but, but yes, more 100%. books like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, so such an important conversation. Um, thank you for that. This episode of the We Go There podcast is brought to you by The Bell Method, a fitness company that blends Pilates with pelvic health, creating choreography from science. You might feel overwhelmed at all the abs after baby programs promising to make you bounce back after birth, or maybe you're feeling unsure of how to exercise in pregnancy and prepare your body for delivery. It can be tough to navigate what information is credible and evidence-based. Women deserve better. 
I created all of our programs with the guidance of pelvic health physiotherapists, and we continue to evolve our programming to stay current with the latest research. At The Bell Method, we ditch guilt and bring balance to our bodies with programs designed to fit your life stage. We'll help you reduce incontinence, diastasis recti, and prolapse so you feel strong, confident, and empowered throughout pregnancy, postpartum, and beyond. I invite you to enjoy 10% off your first class session with the code WEGOTHERE10. Visit www.thebellmethod.com for more. Are you comfortable sharing a little bit about your personal experience and and how you got to be doing the work that you're doing? Absolutely. And, you know, I I appreciate you asking if I'm comfortable because I know there's a lot of survivors out there who who aren't comfortable for very good reason. Um, But I do share my story because I think it's one that parents connect with and it, it helps them recognize that trafficking isn't this problem that happens over there to those people in that place. It's that thing that happens here to our people. Um, if we're not careful, we don't work and, and acknowledge the potential danger. So I was born and raised in Oakville, Ontario. Um, you know, super normal. I hate saying normal, whatever well, normal. So means. was I, we're from the same hometown. I get it. Are we really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. now we have to go through the list of who we know. <laughs> anyway, we'll do that after. Um, but yeah, so born and raised in Oakville, uh, went to school. Santa Claus was filmed around the, the street from my house. So, mm-hmm. you know, the picture perfect Canadian family, both my parents were together. I grew up with an older brother. Um, and I ended up being trafficked in Oakville and in the GTA um, when I was 20 years old. But where, when I share my story, I always try and ensure that people understand, like, I obviously didn't just drop onto this earth when I was 20 years old. Things happened beforehand. So I was actually an anti-trafficking av- advocate when I was 11 years old without even really knowing it. I got involved with a group called Free the Children, later to be called We Charity. I was one of the early first, uh, not very first, but early people involved with that. And at 11 years old, I was getting uh, signatures for a petition and setting up a booth in the mall and all of that to talk about child labor. Um, And I got a lot of pushback from adults when that happened. You know, are your parents running for office? You know, are your parents putting you up to this? You should be going and playing, you know, knocking on doors and they'd be looking behind me going, where are your parents? Why are they putting you up to this? Do you want money? And I remember just being like, aren't I supposed to be doing good things? Like mm-hmm. this is very, this is not the, the reaction I expected. So that the reason I share that is because I always wonder if I hadn't gotten so much disbelief from adults while I was trying to do something good, when something bad happened to me two short years later, when I was about 13 years old, my best friend's uncle started sexually assaulting me. Um, and I didn't tell anyone. And I have to wonder if some of that is because of all of that disbelief when something good was happening um, or when I was trying to do something good, whether that kind of caused me to not feel safe or not feel safe coming forward. So that assault went on for many years. um, And as it continued to happen, I maintained good grades. I was still in gymnastics. I was a swimmer. I did all of those things, but I also started doing drugs on the side. I started smoking pot, um, doing mushrooms, quickly turned into, I think when I was 16, 17, um, ketamine, ecstasy, MDMA, cocaine, 
And I kind of landed on meth and meth turned out to be my drug of choice. So yeah, well, I, I'm just absorbing that. That's, <laughs> I feel like we need to pause. That's, that's a lot. And you're able to tell the story now with, I, can, I mean, you, you seem very comfortable. You're smiling. Like you've obviously had a lot of time to process and work through this. I have spent many, many hours in therapy. I continue to spend many hours in therapy. Um, You know, my brand is now the laughing survivor because part of, like you say, I'm smiling when I talk about this. And I actually tend to get a lot of negativity when people see me smile talking about this because they think I'm... Oh, no, I didn't didn't mean it like that. No, I know you didn't. (laughs) I've I've had comments on on TikTok and all of those things. Um, But the reason I smile and laugh is because I people connect better. I don't want someone to come and hear me talk and then walk away being like, oh my God, I need a, I need a room to cry. And like, I can't absorb that. I want them to understand that it was terrible where it's serious. It's serious, but they don't need to cry for me. We can work together to, to, you know, build community safety. So I'm now, uh, you know, 18, 19 years old, doing meth, having graduated high school, um, didn't go to post-secondary. I was actually managing um, a couple tanning salons at the time. And I started dating the town drug dealer. Um, I knew his brother. His brother had been my drug dealer. When he got out of jail, he I was hanging with the crowd. I guess he came to find me and I knew exactly who he was. I knew his reputation. I knew what I was, I thought I knew what I was getting into. Um, as someone doing drugs, dating a drug dealer just seemed like a natural progression. So I hopped on that train. Um, and, um, from there, everything went bad really quickly. So my, and my ex's relationship was meth fueled. So we were awake all the time. Um, and he was really violent, but at first the violence was never directed at me. I saw it directed at other people, but because it was never directed at me, I felt, um, somewhat invincible from it. And sort of like him and I were like, mm-hmm. you know, a team cause he'd, he'd lash out at other people, but I never felt like I was unsafe. Um, until, and I don't remember what it was, but at some point I turned around and I was like, you know what, like this guy is really intense and I am just trying to party and have fun. And this is getting a little overwhelming. So I decided to break up with him because, uh, you know, there's nothing cooler than dating. The town drug dealer is dumping the town drug dealer, right? Like that was my goal. So I was like, okay, I'm, I'm a break up with you. And when I did, he, uh, I remember this so clearly because I'm telling him, you know, it's not you, it's me. It's like all of that. And he's rummaging through this pile. And he, as I finish up and I'm patting, you know, mentally patting myself on the back, he hands me this piece of paper and I'm scanning it. And it looked like a, a photocopy of a newspaper article or something. And in it, um, it was about a woman who had been um, beaten up, thrown through a glass table, raped, and then bleach poured all over her. And he told me that's what happened to the last girl who tried to break up with me. Oh God. And in that moment, I knew I was trapped. Um, so like I said, up until that moment, there hadn't really been much like negativity between us just around us. But in that moment, I knew I was trapped. He knew I was trapped. Um, and the violence did it. It's, it started focusing on me. 
And so, but like, like typical abusive relationships, it was this cycle of, of love bombing, you know, stress, violent incident, love bombing, stress, violent incident. And again, I'm talking like what would normally happen over several weeks or months was happening over days because we were awake 24 seven for days on end. Um, so then when he turned to me and he said, Hey, we're basically doing more drugs than we're selling. Um, we need to supplement our income. I need you to help. And I was like, this is a great way for me to get in his good books. Like I can do this. Absolutely. And the original goal was just at a house party, you know, Oakville, $300 bottles of booze. Like, you know, we can grab those, pawn them or sell them. My job was to distract. So for me, I was like, yeah, I can do that. I've worked in the bar industry for a long time. I had several tricks up my sleeve. I was happy to do that. Um, and, but after a few of those incidents, he started saying, you know, this isn't enough. I need you to distract people more, take that guy into that room. And I was like, well, I, I, what do you like, what do you expect me to do in there? That doesn't, I, this feels, I don't want to do that. Um, but saying no was not an option. So it was easier, safer, whatever to give in. Once that, once we crossed that line, and also when I said I didn't want to do that, he's like, well, do you want me to tell everyone that you're stealing from them? And I was like, Wait, uh, aren't we stealing from them? And he's like, yeah, who are they going to believe? And I'm like, okay. Um, and so once again, every time you cross with, with predators, right, as soon as a boundary is crossed, it's a win for them. And you now like, you can't go back. You, it, it feels impossible to, to go back. So from there, it turned into like one night we're at the strip club and he literally like picked me up and put me on stage and said, don't get down until you've made me some money. Oh God. Um, I found out later he'd like sold me to the strip club owner. Um, and I had not been part of that conversation. I found out, you know, at the beginning of our relationship, I had sent him some photos. Uh, he had sent me some photos. Thankfully, this is 2007, so they were fairly grainy. Um, but when I found out he was showing them to his friends and, in fact, selling them to his friends or to people, um, I was like, well, I'm not sending you any more photos if you're going to share them. That wasn't the purpose of them. Um, but it turns out I found out later, even though I wasn't going to send him photos, he wasn't going to stop getting them. So he started drugging my drinks and my food, and I would wake up in a motel room like you know, different states of undress. Every time he told me like, you're such a mess, you can't hold your alcohol. Aren't you so lucky? I took care of you. Anything could have happened to you until one day I woke up and he was taking photos of me. And then I, I kind of put two and two together. And I was like, is this what's been like this whole time I've been shamed and, and told I can't handle my alcohol. And then I get confused because I'm like, I had one drink. And I'm on meth. So it like, you would think it would counteract it a little bit, but, um, he just, he just took, he just took from what he wanted. So the reason I share those details is because we so often think of trafficking as the movie taken, right? Someone gets snatched off the, off from under a bed or the side of a street. Um, or it's a, a pimp and a series of motel rooms. And while those things are trafficking, um, that's not what we see typically, right? That's not what we see in um, our suburban towns or our small towns. We see much more 
I hate to use the word smaller, but insidious, you know, the boyfriend who's like, Hey, we can't make rent. Can you go visit the landlord? You're going to have to help us this month. Right. Um, so while trafficking is, like I said, it can be crime syndicates. It can be, um, what we saw in the movie taken. It can also be the boyfriend who's like, you know what, for us to have our dream baby, I just need you to get on stage a few times. I'll keep the money safe, like all of that. So to, to, to break it right down, basically, if there's any commercial sex act, um, and there's a third party profiting from it. Mm-hmm. that's trafficking, providing everyone's over the age of 18. If someone's under the age of 18, if the person, if the victim's under the age of 18, then you're looking at trafficking no matter what, because someone under the age of 18 cannot consent to commercial sex. Right. That's really heavy. And I appreciate you going and, and sharing. And my, I mean, for context, Oakville is such a, like, it's, it's listed. I'm just thinking the fact that we're from the same hometown, we typically think, as you mentioned, that, oh, it happens in, you know, these other countries even, or it's like, you know, you wouldn't imagine this is a very affluent suburb of Toronto and it's like white picket fences everywhere. And, you know, and, and you're, you're, you're shaking your head laughing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, it is. It's very like much that essential. Perfect. Yes. Yeah. Right. Like rose gardens and white picket fences and, and, you know, it, it happened to you there. So it does bring it home, especially for me, you know, cause that's, you kind of <laughs> think, oh, it's, we're in this little bubble, but we're not. No. And the thing for me that was so shocking, so how I got involved in the anti-trafficking work was, so I was trafficked in 2007. I didn't actually find out I was trafficked until 2017 or thereabouts. What? So in that 10 years, I escaped my boyfriend. He followed me. I finally went to the police. We went through a court case together. Um, I got a degree in criminology. I got a postgraduate in victimology. I got a diploma in community and justice services. Um, I worked for the victim witness assistance program. I worked with offenders. I worked in domestic violence shelters of anyone in the world. I should probably have understood what trafficking was and what happened to me, but I thought what happened to me was really domestic violence and a series of bad decisions on my part. Right. Like that's, I, I didn't understand it was trafficking. So when I met someone, when I was living in Wyoming, who was working in the anti-trafficking field and I was like, well, because of visas, I can't legally work, but Hey, I work, I've been doing like helping field work for 10 years. How can I help teach me about trafficking? And so she's teaching me and I'm going, uh, this is familiar. Okay. So I I shared a little bit of my story and I very adamantly told her, like, I'm not, I'm not a trafficking victim. Domestic violence is what I experienced. I'm telling her my story and she's going, um, that's trafficking. You were, you were trafficked, you were exploited. And it was like, oh my God, like, like a slap across the face of like, just a wake up of like, how I, I spoke to the police. How was this not brought up? How was this not a charge? How was this not investigated, how did I not know with all of my education and everything? So that was with me. If I was like, if I don't know, mm-hmm. there's no way other people know. There's no way other parents know or other teens or young adults who are in the same situation who are saying, well, I I made the choice to, to agree to do this thing. So therefore everything that comes after it must be my fault. Right. So the self-blame is a big one. 
And I think that anyone who has experienced any type of sexual assault, um, unwanted even attention, there is such a component of, you know, even like the blaming from society, oh, well, you shouldn't have been doing that, or you shouldn't have been wearing that, or you should, right? And you're nodding your head right now. Yeah. You know, how, how do we address this? Ah, that is, that is a huge question and an excellent question. So we address it one way by people who, like myself, who can share because I am safe now. I have supports. Um, I share. And that's why I share so candidly that I was a drug addict, that I purposely dated the town drug dealer because I don't want to be seen as an innocent victim who is railroaded or anything, because then it takes everyone else like me who made some choices that everyone else would look at and say, oh, that was a dumb idea. Like, why would you do that? Um, It makes them feel shame. And that shame stops people from coming forward and from healing and from being able to label what happened to them with truth and authenticity. So that's part of it. Shame dies when stories are told in safe places. Um, So that is why I share my story. The other thing is involving boys and men in this conversation. Um, Even the term violence against women doesn't, it's like no one's talking about who's committing the violence, right? I am not here to say hate on boys and men. I'm not saying that at all. Um, What I'm saying is we need to educate boys and men um, as well as girls and women about how to dismantle these systems that perpetrate fear and shame and harm against vulnerable populations, regardless of their gender. We need to understand so people understand what exploitation is if it happens to them Mm -hmm. and what exploitation is so they don't do it. And then the harm exploitation causes. So if you have someone who's like, well, you know, she agreed to it. Is it that big of a deal? Um, turn around and be like, it is that big of a deal. It, it, it causes so much harm. Mm-hmm. And those comments, like you said, unwanted attention, I get asked, like, how do I tell my 16 year old boy when he's at the gym, you know, and there's, there's girls there that are in their, their sports bras and their shorts that he can't look. I say, well, you, you tell them it, that they're, they're, they're feeling comfortable is more important trumps his desire to look. You can't tell someone, you can't look at someone else, right? You can't tell someone how to experience the world around them. But what I will say is if you're going to look at someone else, if you're going to experience the world around you, please do so and do so in a way that does not cause harm or discomfort for somebody else's ability to experience their world. There's a lot to to think about with that one. It's true. I mean, let's, I'm going to be honest. There have been times when I have made jokes when I'll see, you know, and now I, you, we both have two children. We each have a boy and a girl. So this is also an interesting conversation. And there have been times when I'm, you know, I'll go to like, I was just at the amusement park and there's tons of teens there, you know, waiting in line for roller coasters. And I had my four-year-old and I'm looking at some of the things that they're wearing and I'm going, geez, I really hope you never wear that. Where it's like their butt is literally like their ass is hanging out of their jean shorts. And, you know, and I'm like, I am now that mom that's like, you know, I'm not judging them. Maybe I don't know if I am. I I hope I'm not. (laughs) But it's this feeling of like, 
I don't want you to, you know, and they're, they're teens and they're exploring whatever, but it's like, yeah, it's hard as a parent to a girl where, you know, and I made jokes. I'm like, I just want to like give them a little shawl to cover up their ass. Cause I know everyone's staring at them, you know, and maybe they want it or whatever it's, they're exploring their sexuality, but it, you know, I don't know if this is going to resonate with anyone listening where you're sort of like, you have to let your, your child, and I'm not there yet because I don't have a teenager, but you have to let your preteen or teen, you know, be comfortable and you don't want to shame them. But there's also that element of like, you're going to, honey, if you wear that, you're going to get creepy dudes staring at your ass, like truth. A hundred percent. So there's something I, I learned um, with little kids and it's, I'm, I'm going to butcher this quote, but something about um, you have to let them do dangerous things safely. That is how they learn. That is how they experience the world. So right, your kid's climbing a tree and you're just standing there going, okay, <laughs> oh, you're going to fall. Like this is, oof, I don't feel good about this. But you can't just snatch them out of the tree and put them on the ground and say, never climb a tree because the tree is dangerous and you might fall. You stand there and you say, Maybe you can get as high, you know, you can climb as high as your body will allow you to do, but I'm not going to give you a ladder or a boost or anything because then you're higher than your body can get you. Or you say, are you watching where you're putting your feet? Or do your hands have a good grip? Do you know what your body's doing? So I think we can translate that as kids get older as well and do dangerous things safely. So do we want to imagine a world where, you know, if you want to walk around in a thong, you're fine. It's not dangerous. There's no repercussions. Maybe some of us do. Maybe some of us don't. Do we live in that world now? No. So we have to meet us and our kids and, and our world where it's at. So no, we can't shame kids who are exploring their sexuality, but we can say these are the risks when you choose to, you know, maybe display your body in that way. So if you're going to do it, you know, make sure you're in a group, um, make sure you know how to stand up for yourself and you know how, what you're comfortable with. If you know that it's going to invite stairs and you can just turn those off so it doesn't bother you. Great. That's your boundary, but your boundary should also be in this conversation you can have is nobody gets to touch you. It doesn't matter what you're wearing. Nobody gets to touch you, not without your consent. There's that word again. Mm -hmm. So is there a way that we can teach kids without saying, I want to wrap you in a giant blanket and <laughs> you are not coming out um, <laughs> until I feel like you have, uh, you know, decision-making capabilities? Um, this or is, is there a way that we can say oh, so good. what you're oh, doing is yeah, there's risks to it. Let's talk about those risks and let's create an open dialogue. So when you come home to me and say, uh, you know, I took the subway home and some guy grabbed my ass, you know, you know that you can safely say that to me. We can figure out what we're going to do about it. And I'm not going to turn around and say, well, you're, you're, it was hanging out of your shorts. What do you expect? Right. Right. Because those kind of reactions are going to get kids to shut down that shaming and shame is what people, why, why people stay silent. Yeah. Oh, this is really powerful. And it's challenging me as well to really start to think about ways to create more of a, an open trusting environment to have these conversations with my daughter, because I, you know, that's, I was raised like that, like, don't go asking for it, da, da, da. Right. Like, and so yeah. it's, it's interesting to sort of say, okay, how do I, you know, the classic, like, 
you know, if we would wear, you know, I had to wear um, like a uniform to school and we just roll it shorter when our parents weren't looking, right? Like that kind of thing where it's like, I don't care, whatever it's going to be. And then you start to get like the, like literally your butt is hanging out because they're not looking anymore. Anyways, that's a silly example, but um, how do we talk about boys? Because, you know, what can we do to talk to our younger boys about ways that they can almost, you know, obviously not participate, but also stand up for perhaps when they observe something bad happening, something exploitative happening? Uh, so with boys, yeah, the conversation is the same, especially when they're young. Talk about consent. We want people to under understand consent from both sides, giving and getting. Um, as they get a little bit older and you start introducing intimacy and sex into the conversation, we're shifting now from that no means no to yes means yes, right? Because that is a, it's, it's, it's a small change, it feels like, but it, it's also a really big change because I know myself and I know lots of my friends have been in sexual situations where they weren't necessarily into it, but they didn't want to insult or, or didn't feel comfortable saying no or, you know, whatever that all of that. So now yes means yes. And in fact, asking for consent can be sexy. And if you don't feel comfortable asking for consent, let's discuss why you feel comfortable performing the act that you don't feel comfortable asking for consent mm -hmm. about. Mm -hmm. Um, that's on a, on a micro level, like talking directly to, to our children, um, on a macro level, we need to do a huge shift in society. Um, when I train, I often train about, you know, media influence and how it affects us. And I'm not here to say, you know, burn the books and turn off the TV shows and, and destroy the music videos. I'm here to say, have them and think critically about them and teach our kids to do the same. So when we had a huge swath of, you know, rom-coms that were always a girl who said, no, I'm not interested. No, I'm not interested. No, I'm not interested. And then the guy just kept pursuing and basically wearing her down until finally she realized she actually loved him. It sounds really sweet kind of in theory, but when you break it down like that, you're mm -hmm. like, a lot of us go, oh yeah, yeah, we've had that, you know, experience. Um, you know, the friend zone, even this thing that we joke about, poor guys stuck in the friend zone. Well, what about the poor girl who thought she had a friend that was apparently just trying to have sex with her? Right. You know, girls are not, I, I've said to my friends before, and it's something I'll say to my son when he's older is girls are not machines. You put kindness coins into until sex falls out. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> That's oh not a thing. That's summarizes a lot. I think that. Uh, Right. So, and that's where we have to shift the, the societal um, language about what's okay and what's not okay and, and get boys. So stop making it a gendered thing of women and girls having to fight against boys and men for, um, you know, our right to exist or where we want or anything. Let's bring boys and men into this conversation and say, hey, fight with us, you know, call out your buddy. You don't have to, you know, give them a big psychological diatribe or a history of feminism. You can just turn around and say, dude, that's fucked up. Don't do that. <laughs> like, that's yeah. literally all you have to say to your buddy. And you know what? If you're willing to say it, 
maybe the next time someone who heard you say that will be willing to say it in another group when something else happens. And it's little comments, guys who are willing to step forward and say those what four words, dude, that's fucked up and then drop it. It doesn't have to become more than that. Guys who start willing to do that is how we dismantle um, some of the more major institutions, like I hate to say, but the, the hockey in Canada that just came out, all of that. Um, if there had been guys in there willing to say, dude, no, yeah, don't do that. Um, then hopefully that will inf- infiltrate, you know, the others. And we need to have it turn around. So it's not the lot, like the, the one dude standing by himself saying that it's the one dude standing by himself trying to commit harm. And all the other guys are like, dude, that is so last century. Like, no, we don't treat women like that anymore. Yeah, Let's treat with respect. Let's treat each other with respect. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I love that so much. And I, yeah, I think we've all been in situations like, like where you sort of think about situations that should have been called out that maybe weren't called out. And I love that idea of, of encouraging, you know, especially our boys, but our girls as well. Um, but it, it's true. Like I'm just picturing like the hockey bro that's like, dude, you can't do that anymore. You're not laughing, but you know, kind of don't be a creep, mm-hmm. you know, cause they'll actually, that, that would, yeah. that would, force them to kind of stop and pause and go, oh my gosh, I don't want to be a creep, you know, and stop doing it. Um, I want to absolutely. Yeah. Lexi here. Okay. So let's shift to another under the radar, not so hot topic for a minute. Body hair. Everyone's got it, but a lot of us want to live smoother. Am I right? 10 years ago, I started Wax On Laser and Wax Bar. Wax On isn't just any waxing and laser hair removal bar. We are the industry leader creating a safe space that inspires people to live confidently in their own skin. Over the years, we've developed trust. Trust that you know you're getting the best quality and comfortable experience every single time. Whatever you come to Wax On for, it's going to be awesome. We've created our own exclusive gold wax formula that's like no other. It's as pain-free and long-lasting as it gets, perfect for all your waxing needs. At WaxOn, we've invested in top-of-the-line laser technology that's effective on virtually any hair and skin tone for effective results on every body. Seriously. And we carry a carefully curated collection of products. Some we make ourselves, locally I might add, and some are from brands we've fallen in love with that adhere to our values and standards of clean, good for you, and female founded. If you haven't experienced Wax On, I invite you to enjoy 20% off your first service with code WEGOTHERE. Visit waxon.ca or download the mobile app to book in with code WEGOTHERE because there is such a thing as a better hair removal experience to help you live smoother. I want to like talk a bit more about the, the tips you might have for someone listening to this who's going through their own trauma healing um, especially sexual trauma healing, because you're you've obviously had to overcome so much, and you're now in this this place of using your past experience in a way to help so many so many people in such a generous, empathetic way. And I think that's just I'm truly I'm in awe of it, to be honest. Um, but what would you say to someone listening to this who is not quite there yet? What do they need to do? Um, therapy, 
therapy for all, um, a more accessible therapy, um, that, that, that opens a can of worms. So I won't dive into that. And I recognize that therapy is not accessible for all. Um, but it should be, um, because frankly, I joke, it's ha half a joke, uh, around about the fact that I'm not putting money away for my kids post-secondary education. You can get loans for that. I'm putting my money away for their therapy. Um, <laughs> Because everybody should be in therapy at some point. Everybody should have a way to help understand their feelings and why they do the things they do and why they are the way they are and, and how to work through if they do have trauma. Um, we're all, you know, screwed up in different ways and we're all awesome in different ways. Um, healing is a process. It's not, it's not linear. You know, you don't, you don't start and, and, and get a little bit better and a little bit better and a little bit better. You start and you you get better and then you you realize you didn't actually get better. You just like masked it. So you have to go back and undo the mask and go and get better again. Um, my tip is just keep pushing through. The world needs you and your talents and your gold and you didn't deserve whatever happened to you. Um, no matter what story your head is telling you, you didn't deserve it. You didn't cause it. Um, if you can access therapy, access therapy and highlight all of the good, acknowledge the bad and highlight all of the good. Because, you know, I say I, I have done many hours of therapy. I have. I'm still in therapy. I have a team of mental health specialists that I work with for me to be able to share my story regularly. Um, and you know what? I thought I was like pretty healed and, and doing pretty well. And then I had kids and it like ripped everything open from a totally different perspective. And now I'm having to go back and like basically sew up wounds that I didn't even know were there. Mm. Um, and while I'm saying that I, it's not meant to like, you know, scare anybody into being like, wait, what? I, I, I feel like I'm healed and, and I just have kids or I'm about to have kids. It's, there's always work you can do on yourself and there's always something you can learn and there's always a different way to think about something. So if you can share, share. I think I said a quote earlier that um, shame dies when stories are told in safe places. Share. There is so much power even in sharing with a journal or a friend or, um, you know, talking into the oblivion of just your phone recording or something or not recording uh, a therapist, a parent, whoever you have, that's a safe space, start with sharing and go from there. Really powerful advice. Thank you. And I think it's a good point that you brought up too, regarding, you know, the impact that, that even going through pregnancy and birth that I know for a lot of people who, you know, cause obviously, you know what I do, I'm teaching a lot of pregnant women in people to to really get ready for birth and and if you have experienced trauma i mean birth is inherently a sexual kind of thing if you really get into it um you know and it can be very hard for mm -hmm. people um so anyways we're not that's a whole other maybe a sequel to this podcast <laughs> but um but yeah <laughs> good to there's talk a lot about there yeah. there's a lot there there's a, that's a whole other conversation but yeah, just to, especially even to try to find trauma-informed care providers, I think is, is a really good one as well. Um, we had one, I asked you before we started recording, I said, what is one of the questions or topics that you wish we spoke more about, but like doesn't really get a lot of airplay? And you brought up um, the sort of sex work and how 
you know, there is a movement in many places, it already is decriminalized. So what, you know, and you told me this can get political and I've got to be honest with you, I am not well-versed in this conversation. So I think it's an interesting thing. Maybe we can talk about briefly before we wrap up, like what's the deal with, is there a benefit to decriminalizing sex work? As a lot of people are saying, you know, does it allow people who are doing this work to be safer, um, to get more resources to, you know, to be less marginalized? I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah. Um, so in Canada, we have a federal law that follows what's known as the equality model, um, which means that the prostituted person or the victim or the person engaging in sex work is not criminalized at any point at all. Should they ever come into contact with law enforcement for what they're doing? Um, the purpose is to criminalize the buyer of sex and then the someone living off the avails of, of that, so like a, a trafficker, brothel owner, that sort of thing. That's what's criminalized in Canada right now. However, there is a big push to decriminalize sex work. And the narrative is sex work is work. Um, and it's, it is political, like you said. Um, but I can give my opinion on it as someone who comes from both that lived experience expertise as well as that academic um, background. Mm -hmm. So... Would decriminalizing sex work in Canada do a lot of those things you mentioned, like make things safer or, or be able to provide better resources for people currently engaged in uh, the commercial sex industry? Yes, I will say that. Because what would happen is, you know, there with buyers not being um, criminalized, when buyers are criminalized, they're less likely to want to like stand, you know, and have a conversation about who they are, what they're going to do, what the contract is, basically. They just, they need to get off the street or or they don't want to have proper conversations online because they can be criminalized for it. So that actually puts the sex worker at a higher risk because they don't have the time to properly vet their clients. Um, pardon me. So things like that, even, you know, a landlord who says, hey, I know what you're doing um, and either I'm going to kick you out or now I'm going to blackmail you, you know, for my own services or in, in ways like that, absolutely, it could make um, the population safer. There's also a large, uh, this crowd that says, you know, it pulls the police out of the equation in the commercial sex industry. And there is a longstanding negative relationship between sex workers and law enforcement. So I totally understand where they're like, okay, they have treated us like crap for since the beginning of time, not interested in continuing to um, work with them. However, I am not pro decriminalization. And for a, a couple of reasons, one is opening the doors to this industry. We have to acknowledge, first of all, that this industry is inherently violent and it preys on vulnerable populations and marginalized populations. It's exploitative. And if it wasn't, if it was truly empowering, mm -hmm. then, you know, sorry, this is a bit stereotypical, but cis white men would have taken it over, right? They would be the number one people existing in this world because that tends to be, they tend to lead the, the high level, empowering, you know, respected jobs. And we're not seeing a lot of cis white men as sex workers. 
Um, we're seeing vulnerable populations, LGBTQIA populations, indigenous populations, um, people who have experienced tra unresolved trauma, sexual assault, uh, don't have strong family structure behind them, all of that. So we know that this um, industry preys on vulnerable populations. So by decrimming it, basically opening the doors to it, would it in the short term create uh, an easier time or, or potentially protection for people currently engaged? Yes. Would it result in more people getting sucked into an extremely dangerous industry? Also, yes. I have to, uh, you know, one of the things I say is, it, it, the reason I say it's political is because it's almost become this idea where like, if you are anti-decriminalization, then you're very conservative uh -huh. because the the other side, the, the liberals, the NDPs are very sex work is work, my body, my choice, all that sort of narrative. Now, I will say that is where I would sit on basically every issue. I'm bisexual. I'm a daughter of immigrant parents. I um, believe everybody should have rights to their body, all of that. However, I also know that in this industry, there is only a very small percentage of people who are in it who genuinely love their jobs, who are not there because of trauma, marginalization, vulnerabilities. Um, and I believe in Canada, we should be making federal laws to protect our most vulnerable, not make things easier for small um, populations that already have support. So my suggestion would be not to decriminalize, but instead pour resources into shoring up the cracks that we know people are falling through that land them working in the sex industry. You know, I hear all the time from the pro-decrim crowd that people are just trying to survive out there. You know, these people are just in this industry because they're just trying to survive. And to that, I say a lack of choice does not and should not equal consent. If you have no other option to keep food on your table, a roof over your head, your kids in activities, whatever it is, then the problem is not the, the federal law around sex work. The problem is the complete lack of resources available to you that led you to making this decision out of desperation and survival. Yeah, this is a huge conversation. And I, I know you're you've obviously been challenged on this opinion, it sounds like before, because you know, there's and I love that you started this answer with sharing the ways that it could be beneficial, but you're absolutely right. I mean, it goes back to thinking about, you know, how did that person get to that place in the first place? in a way. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, this absolutely person, you didn't grow up and say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a sex worker. Like probably not, probably didn't happen like that. I'm guessing. Um, well, act exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's about, you know, finding, finding a way to feel empowered. And I understand where it's like, we're going to legalize this. It's work. I can try to find empowerment, but you know, I understand the question of, is it true empowerment? Is it? I, don't know. I mean, I cannot speak for everyone who's ever worked in this industry. I can speak to my own experience and those that have been shared with me. And what I can share is something I often say is I technically walked into the commercial sex industry, a willing participant, and I ran out a victim of trafficking. 
Mm-hmm. So when I walked into it, I was 20 years old. I was like, you know what? If some guy is dumb enough to be distracted by me because I like, you know, took off my shirt or whatever it is, then, you know, bully for him, I'm making money. You know, right. I'm, I, if, if I'm going to be shamed for my body or my, especially because I had sexual trauma, if it's, if sex is going to be taken from me, I may as well make money. Right. That was, that was sort of my mindset going in. And then once I was trapped and once I was in trouble, anyone who asked me, I still returned with, um, you know what? You are square. Like you work a boring job. How much money do you even make? Like I party for a living. Do you know how much money I make? Come on. Because I was experiencing what's called cognitive dissonance. Basically, it's like a mental break. So I could either proclaim loudly that I loved my job, that what I did, that I wanted to be there, that I was safe, happy, healthy, having fun. Or I could listen to the other part of me that was like, this isn't my life. I don't want to be here. But if I listened to that, then I had to acknowledge that I was trapped. Um, And that opened a can and I, I was, I was trapped. So I couldn't listen to that voice. I had to just keep telling everyone around me and therefore myself that I wanted to be there, that I was having fun, I was making money, all of this. And, you know, once I exited, it took a long time for me to unpack that I wasn't to blame for what happened. And then, you know, once I labeled it something totally different, it wasn't just domestic violence and bad decisions, like I thought, it was trafficking. And I understood the trauma bonds, the psychological impact of trafficking, the neurobiological impact of trauma and how that led me into that cycle. Then I was able to actually release a lot of that self-blame and be like, oh, I kind of understand how this happened. And yeah, no, I wasn't actually um, having all that much fun. And in fact, many people I know who um, lived the life and were in the game they same thing. They said while they were doing it, they partied, they were having fun. If the little voice ever was like, uh, you know, when you were six, you wanted to be a veterinarian. This is not veterinarian school. Um, they would shut that voice up really quickly. And it wasn't until they'd exited and whether it was a year later, or five years later, or 10 years later, that they were able to look back on their experience more critically and be like, oh yeah, no, that was, that was bad. And in fact, I'm experiencing a lot of trauma because of that. There's another survivor um, in Canada who wasn't trafficked. She worked in the commercial sex industry, um, was never trafficked in it. And she now speaks about her experiences, how, and the trauma she has because of it, because of just working in the industry. And she's described it to me before as, think of, you know, every time you engage with someone, they take a bite out of you. They take a chunk of you. You lose a piece of you, and then that flesh just starts rotting, and it, that that rot just covers you. And so she's exit. I don't know how many years she's been exited now, but she is a huge um, proponent against decriminalization because she's like, even if you're in this place willingly, the trauma you experience is lifelong. So it's not an industry we want to just swing the doors open to and say, Hey, this is empowering. Let's do it. It's not bottom line is it's not. Oh, there's so much I want to talk to you about. And the one thing I realized that we didn't touch on yet is the social media and our kids. Yes. 
Yeah. So taking pictures, sharing pictures of your kids, um, you know, I feel like there was, there was no good segue to this. I'm just like, I don't want this to, you know, I'm like, we got to cover it all. So sorry for the abrupt segue. Cause that was, you're so, you're so articulate with everything that you're saying. And I'm just like hanging off every word. So I, thank you for that. You know, I'm like, Oh crap. We didn't talk about this one thing that I know is going to be on the minds of people. You know, you know, what, what is the protocol? Like does sharing a photo of your kid, at the splash pad or whatever in their bathing suit, like, you know, are we, are we doing harm in that way? Um, okay. So I'll try not to make this too long because I know you're wanting to wrap up. Um, I am going to be putting out more tips and tricks for parents on my own Instagram. So for online safety, that's something I try and focus on because I see it happening a lot. Um, so once I figure out how to use Instagram better, I will get some videos up. So there is that. But some quick tips is one, there is no 100% safe way to share pictures of your kid online. That's the bottom line. Having said that, I'm not telling you don't share pictures of your kid. Things to remember. First of all, I've worked with the um, Internet Crimes Against Children groups out of the U.S., as well as um, people who who teach online safety and work with RCMP here in Canada. Um, and the overall feeling is these days, it is not a matter of when a predator sees your child online or or if a predator sees your child online, it is a matter of when, um, and they, whether that's from you posting or from them having their own account. So a couple tips I will give for parents who are posting their kids. One, do not post naked pictures and cover up their junk with an emoji, Someone can take that picture and remove that emoji fairly easily if they're looking to cause harm. Crop the photo. Anything you don't want in the photo, if it's their their school uniform um, or your first day of school pics that say what school they're going to, what grade they're going in, please stop posting those. That's Don't do that because it's so easy for predators to go, oh, that's a kid I like the look of. And now I know what school they go to. Oh, great. Oh, I'm getting, I've literally have shivers because we're about to go into JK. And of course, like, did your kid even go to kindergarten if you didn't do the first day back to school <laughs> photo, right? Like, it's like become a thing, like with the chalkboard or whatever. But that's- Do the chalkboard. I like the things I like. Even, I will say that, even that, Guess what? If you post things like that, when your kid's really young, they're not using, you know, online platforms uh, on their own. But if you post that in grade six, then guess what? A predator goes to message your kid and they go, oh, you know, I'm so into ballet because their little back to school photo said that they're into ballet. More often than not, 99% of the time people are hurt and exploited and trafficked um, by someone they know, love and trust. And it could be a stranger on the internet that has gained love and trust by knowing what your kid likes, where they go to school, where they hang out, those sorts of things. So crop photos, don't share um, personal information, don't share pictures of their junk, be very careful with hashtags. We know predators search things like hashtag boy mom, hashtag girl mom, hashtag baby's first bath. Mm. Um, It gives, turns my stomach, but we know that. I also know, and this is where I say there's no 100% safe way, because we have come across um, Instagram accounts where people have stolen photos, and it's literally your kid at the splash pad, or your kid, you know, the soccer photo where they've got their foot on the ball, and they're in their soccer uniform, or maybe it's just them 
running on grass, like could be the most innocuous, innocent photo. And they steal these photos, they make accounts. And in the caption, they write um, sexual fantasies of everything they would do to that child. Um, and I don't think any parent wants to come across that. So just be really aware. Anything you put online is online forever and predators take them. And they, even the most innocent of photos um, can be stolen. I will give one more tip for parents who have slightly older kids. Think, uh, first of all, your kids are not owed privacy on their devices. It's not a right of their existence that they get privacy to use the internet. Um, that is something they can earn from you as you trust, learn to trust them. So when you do start introducing a device to your kids, one, it's not allowed in their bedroom or in the bathroom. That is where most um, suggestive photos are taken and sent from. So don't put no devices in bedrooms or bathrooms and tell them, especially early on, yes, you get to use this, but I'm going to, when you go to bed, it stays here and I will be going through all of your DMs. I'm going to be looking through your apps. I'm going to be monitoring what you're doing and, you know, sit down with them. If you only feel comfortable learning to use three apps, then guess what? They're only allowed to have three apps on their phone. You are allowed to set boundaries around devices. It doesn't matter if their friend has, you know, complete freedom. Maybe talk to that friend's parents about some tips you know now about how to protect them. But think of it when you teach your kid how to cross a road, right? You're not just like, well, good luck. <laughs> hope, hope you make it. You carry them across at first, right? And then when they're like, no, mommy, like I want to walk. Okay, you can walk, but I'm holding your hand and not you're holding my hand like I am death clutch on your wrist, <laughs> right? Like you are not going anywhere. And then from that, you might lightly hold hands from that. You might stand at the edge and let them cross. Um, it's a gradual thing. Same thing with online use over their shoulder, a hundred percent of the time to start with. Um, and then slowly give them freedom, but be honest with them. Yep. I'm going through all of your crap. When you go to bed, I'm looking through everything and have conversations with them about it. Try and keep the blame and judgment out of it. You know, why would you keep talking to this person if they're a stranger? Mm -hmm. Well, they make me feel good, right? Okay, well, acknowledge. How do they make you feel good? How can we give that feeling to you at home from someone you know, love, and trust? Mm -hmm. um, create that open dialogue as early as possible and that trust back and forth. Um, and and don't don't just don't just hand the internet over ever because <laughs> the internet is uh, a scary place. It is something we have to get used to. You have to teach your kids how to use it. You can't just keep them off it until they're 18. Um, that's a terrible idea as well, but work with them, teach them the way you would teach them to do anything else gradually. Can you write a book, please? <laughs> I am writing a book. Yay. Oh my goodness. <laughs> I am writing a book. Good. Of I course have, you are. I'm writing, uh, it's called, I laugh in the face of trauma. Um, and it's sort of just a memoir piece of what happened, how it happened. And I actually have some colleagues and experts who will be able to put in some chapters that explain like the neurobiology of what's oh, happening for those of us who like to nerd out. Yep. Um, and now I have, since I started that before I had kids um, and since becoming a mom, I'm now looking at writing another one called a mom in the face of trauma, basically, and talking about how to navigate the world as a mom and, and everything, like you said, from pregnancy through to how the hell do I let my kids go into a world that yeah. I know is not totally safe? How do I protect them? 
This has been so powerful, so important, and I am really grateful that you took the time to share with us so openly. So thank you. And thank you for all the tips too. I feel like I need a PDF, <laughs> like a cheat sheet of like, how do you, you know, like just those are a reminder of those, like, how do you deal? I mean, we're obviously not at the phones yet, but you know, when the time comes, I know I've already got like a bit of anxiety around it, but even those conversations to have with your young children, like this has been just so, so important. So thank you again, Alexandra, tell everybody again, where they can find you on Instagram and your website and all that. Yeah. So on Instagram at the laughing survivor, um, on TikTok, the same thing. I'm still under the debate whether I'm too old for TikTok or not, but no, no, it's good. I'm, I honestly, they say if you're under 27, do it, but you know what? It's great that you're on both. I am I put all my eggs into one basket. <laughs> Not on TikTok. Well, Instagram doesn't seem to like me, but TikTok is here for me. So who knows? I do have a website as well. It's just the laughing survivor.com. Um, I'm going to be updating it soon. But, and like I said, now that I just, I literally just finished my thesis um, and my master's. So now I'm able to focus more on the laughing survivor. And I actually am going to be putting out um, like an educational video series. And I've been suggested to do some handouts. Um, I'm hoping to do some more like parent caregiver trainings, uh, just to talk about all these things for kids as young as two up to 20, um, just all those sorts of stuff. So I'm, I'm really excited now that I can actually dive into this. So. so good. Well, congratulations on all your hard work and thank you again. And I know this will be just the first of many conversations. So thanks again. Oh, definitely. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for our next episode. And in the meantime, follow us on Instagram at we go there podcast and check out we go there podcast.com for more info.